So this is probably another episode to indicate something that I talked about towards the beginning of the season. I don't know how many of you remember this, but I mentioned how season two was just bipolar, right? Like, there's episodes like Measure of a Man and Emissary, and then there's episodes, and Q Who, and then there's episodes like The Icarus Factor or The Royale, right? Um, or one that's coming up, which we're not there. Oh, Up the Long Ladder. That was a surprise for me. I really, it really was. But then we have episodes like this, which are good. I actually really like this episode. In fact, I liked this episode even back in the day. This is actually one of my favorite ones to rewatch. Mind if I give you a bit of backstory? Don't worry, it won't take me long. When I was a kid, we actually had a VCR, because my mother's actually pretty well off. Some of you will understand why I say that. I'm not going to bother to explain. Point being, I used to record episodes as they'd go live on the TV. And then I'd be sitting there, right there, with the VCR. So I'd hit pause when it went to tele uh, commercial, and then I'd hit record again when it came back from commercial. So I could have, basically, the episodes I wanted. And... Yes, even as a kid, I was a little bit of an organization geek. So I used to basically have different cassette tapes. We had a bunch. And I would have, like, the episodes I really like, and then the episodes that are okay, and then the episodes that I'm just collecting to have the episodes, to have the whole thing. So I didn't actually have TNG in an order. I had, like, the tapes that were my favorites, the tapes that were okay, and the tapes I never watched. In other words, the, the, if this is not obvious, I would re-watch many, certain episodes a lot because that was kind of my entertainment um, as far as television goes back in the day, re-watching Star Trek The Next Generation. This was one of the episodes that was on that re-watch regularly thing, along with several other episodes of Season 2, like the ones I just mentioned. And I just thought I'd mention that because I found that my opinion um, is... I mean, for the most part, <laughs> most of our com the comments I read from you guys is that we're at least relatively on the same board. But every now and again, I you know I give my opinion, my honest opinion, and the people are like, Wah! and just are completely shocked that I feel a certain way, which I find very strange and unusual, uh, and awesome because it's great to hear from differing opinions from different people for different reasons. As ever, that's one of the joys of actually running this channel and this doing this show is hearing from you guys and what you guys think. So I really like this episode. It'll be curious to see how many of you disagree with me on this one for whatever reason. But I want to say why I really like this episode. First of all, Roy Brook, Brock, Brocksmith? I'm not actually sure how to pronounce it. He does a really good job with Cole Rom. He's the guest star. I just talked about good guest stars last episode. He actually nails the part surprisingly well, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a second. And while there are severe logical loopholes in this episode, which I'll discuss later, I like the idea of this kind of war game. It's something that's fascinating to me. It shows Riker doing well. It shows Worf thinking on his feet. It shows uh, Geordi being able to pull off a miracle, pretty much earning his engineering flat stars, probably for the first time, if we're being honest. Um, Wesley actually being decent. It's always nice. Pulaski being legitimately friendly and awesome towards Data. And in many ways, this is functionally Pulaski's last episode, so it was nice to see her in a positive light. Um, yeah, there's, there's good stuff throughout most of it. I, I enjoyed the concept. I even felt like the actual dilemma made a weird amount of sense, even though there I do have a nitpick about it. Again, we'll get there. I do once again reiterate my wish that the episode... Um, oh, what is it? I'm actually looking at my list of episodes over here. I can never remember the name of it because it's not actually that good of an episode. Uh, 
Unnatural Selection. That's the one. I reiterate my wish that Unnatural Selection was after this episode. I, I hate to re-emphasize that point, but, but notice how friendly and polite and nice Pulaski is to Data in this episode. She reaches out to him functionally as a friend. She tries to talk him out of what she perceives as his slump. And even when he, when she approaches date, uh, Picard about it, she says this in terms as if this is someone she's concerned about. Not just because of professionally, but because she's grown to more fond of him. Take this and then, uh, seriously, take this and then watch Unnatural Selection right after this. And all of a sudden the development and her warmth towards Data just suddenly makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? Because she's grown towards him and he towards her throughout the whole season. It's been a nice little story arc. Quiet and in the background, but well done. Anyways, so... <sighs> My first big nitpick, I have to address this right off the bat. Why aren't they doing this on the holodeck? A holodeck is a 100% controlled environment, unless the safeties fail and it goes on the fritz. But let's presume for a moment that that is the outlier, and the other 99. a billion percent of the time, the holodeck actually works fine. I mean, you have to figure, right? So wouldn't it make sense to do this kind of thing on the holodeck? Now, of course, there are downsides with doing that. Several of the things that Riker was doing in this episode, he wouldn't be able to do in real life. Or, excuse me, in a holodeck, because he was actually basically cheating. But at the same time, I don't know, I, I don't see, like, I'm trying to think how to phrase this. Rather than putting two ships, including one very valuable ship, in severe danger with apparently no support, there's like no one else in range for whatever reason, and no backup, and only one observer on one of the ships... They could have done this like a dozen different ways. Why was the Hathaway towed to this one planet in the middle of nowhere, right? Why not do this, oh, I don't know, next to a starbase, where you can observe and monitor and detect and, and repair as is needed and be ready with you know, rescue crew or whatever. This is a weird way to do military exercises. I, I don't know. I know that we in real life do military exercises in all sorts of places in the on the world, but... And I don't know if this is still true, but at least at one point in history we would do those exercises with other people not involved in the exercises there. Just in case, right? And again, the holodeck would just solve all these problems. So you could either put it on the holodeck or you could put it somewhere that makes sense. But of course we wouldn't have the threat of the week if not for that. You can... yeah. <laughs> because function Seriously, think about this for a second. If we rewrote this to make a little bit more sense, let's assume it, we want to do the real life thing because we want the uh, the improvisation from Wesley and Jordy and Worf and Riker. Okay, cool. So why don't we go ahead and move this over to a starbase? Well, how do we have a threat of the week? Easily, a starbase is not a very defensible position. So while a starbase may be able to support them, it will not be able to directly involve itself in the the battle with the Marauder. Especially if they're outside of transporter range when this all starts. Now, granted, transporter range is pretty far, so you'd probably have to be on the far side of the planet, which doesn't make sense, so we'd have to find another way to, to, to solve that problem. So, I actually got nothing at that point. I'd have to really sit and think about how you could still have the threat of the week and still have this make sense. I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts. If any of you have the time or interest in trying to come up with a to have the Ferengi threat of the week, but still have it make sense, I'd love to hear it from you. Because I got nothing, and i got to get on to the rest of the episode. <sighs> so, 
Um, I mentioned Roy Brocksmith, who plays Kolrami. He does this really great thing where Riker is just striding. Now, Jonathan Frakes is a bit over six feet. He's a tall, broad kind of a guy. Um, you know, he's kong, kong. And if you watch, he is basically lunging in his steps. Now, you can tell he's doing that on purpose because the director told him to, because that way Kolrami can do his kind of thing to keep up with him. Otherwise, he would just be going too quickly and would bump into Riker's back. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if that happened during test runs and test blocking. It does kind of indicate that it's a good way to be introduced to Kolrami. It gives us this impression of this person who's always on edge and is always doing something. And in fact, in every other scene he's in, he's pretty much always got his pad and he's always doing something. Um, and then Worf says, he is pathetic. And then Data has to explain to Worf what strategy is. What? Keep in mind, later in this episode, Worf will have this whole speech about guile in a great scene. And yet, and then, dun 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 Sorry. Um, and then, but here, Worf has to have the concept of tactics and strategy explained to him by Data. Which doesn't even begin to make sense to me. But then he says something that I do like. You know, in, in generations, no one's actually tested their, their, uh, reputation as being incredible tacticians. And the Worf says, well, then their reputation is meaningless. Because it hasn't been proven. Which is a wonderfully Worf thing to think, and I did like that touch. <sighs> so then they have the, the meeting scene. And I'm going to about piss off some of my viewers again, because one of the first things that is said is that uh, Picard says, Starfleet is not a military organization. I've made my opinion on this so clear so many times, I'm actually not going to reiterate it. Let's just move on. Feel free to be angry at me. It's okay. Differing opinions. I get it. I love it. Um, I want more differing opinions, but f to me, I cannot picture Starfleet as anything other than a military organization. I could argue that the Federation is not a military organization. <laughs> that's, that's a pretty easy argument. But Starfleet? I, I really could go into this topic again. I've decided not to. But I do want to comment on something else, because Picard says this sanctimonious statement, and then immediately contradicts himself by adding that the Borg convinced him of the need to do more tactical exercises. Now pause for a moment. Credit where credit is due. That's some good continuity, because remember, the whole point of the Borg was that they were so laughably, hysterically outmatched that they couldn't even begin to adapt on time. They were screwed. And so doing this kind of exercise makes perfect sense. Uh, I'll talk about that more in a bit, because there's another point where that comes up. And I do also like the idea that the Borg would kind of be a kick in the pants to Starfleet. And as we see in Best of Both Worlds, they flat out admit that for the past X period of time, they have been preparing for the Borg to come. So it's not like they've been sitting on, you know, sitting back on their laurels this whole time. So that's good, too. The thing that makes me go, hmm, is, was the Federation really sufficiently complacent with the Cardassians and the Zinkethi and the Romulans and, uh, God, I actually don't, I know there's a couple others, relatively minor powers. I suppose you could also add the Klingons into that list, who are just all kind of there and all militarily present and it's, now we don't need to do anything. We don't need to do tactics exercises. We're friends with everyone, even though we just finished a war with two of those people. And we just reinitiated contact with one of those people for the first time in a while. But no, we're cool. It just, 
the thing is, I'm irritated by this, but not in a bad writing kind of a way. I could totally see the Federation being, let's put this as bluntly as we can, that's stupid. The idea of completely mothballing their military efforts in, and strategic efforts in the wake of, eh, everything's cool now, is extremely short-sighted. Now, I'm not saying they'd have to have some arms race. That's an opposite extreme. But, you know, you, you can still do these kind of tactical exercises as a regular part of your purview and still kind of work on new tech and new military power without being a warmonger. Which brings me to Riker. <laughs> I decided to write this down word for word because I don't want to be seen as misrepresenting this. And I quote, I prefer brains over brawn as well. I think it's a waste of effort to test our combat skills. It's a minor province in the makeup of a starship captain. Now, I could go into multiple ways, but I've decided to limit myself to only two ways I find that to be an incredibly stupid statement. Way number one, I've already already mentioned. Uh, military activity is something that is an unfortunate reality of being a nation. Whether you are at space or on ground, that's still something you kind of have to be prepared to do. Whether you're fighting another nation or the complete unknown. How many times has the Enterprise, in this show, the Enterprise-D with Riker there, had to fight some enemy of some kind or another tactically in military combat? Now, granted, that is different from all-out warfare. That is a very different animal, and I will agree on that. But remember, this is about one-on-one -on -one battles which is not a military engagement. That's a one-on-one -on -one ship fight. This is just about stretching your tactics and seeing what you can do with regards to strategy. So, why is he having an opposition to this? Oh yeah, that also brings me to the... Excuse me, I've decided to extend it to three. That brings me to the second, or rather the third, thing I find stupid about this. I prefer brains over brawn as well. No pause. I think it's a waste of effort to test our combat skills. What is the difference there, Riker? Does Riker not, does Riker think that Starship Camp combat involves walking up to someone and punching them? <laughs> Brains over brawn is tactics, is strategy. That's, that's what that is. <laughs> that's the entire purpose of this exercise, and he's up opposed to it because he agrees with it? I really feel like those lines needed another polish pass. In fact, if you notice, Jonathan Frakes actually stumbles over the lines a couple times like he's just having issues saying them. I'm, I'm dead serious. In fact, I had trouble writing it down because he says, I think it's a waste of effort to test our combat skills, a minor province in the makeup of... You know, it feels like there's like a stutter there as he, as he switches from one sentence to the other. That brings me to my next point. Um, and the final point why I find Riker Riker's statement to be stupid. I want you to imagine for a moment that you work at a data center. And at this data center, you have an entire procedure for checking to make sure the backup generators are working and the fire suppression system is working. And you do that twice a night, every night. Yes, this is what one of the things that was part of my job back when I worked in the data center, years ago at this point. Now, that was an extremely minor part of my job. It was, you know, it, it took only a couple of minutes, and it was something I did every night, twice, and then and I logged it into the inspection report to prove that I did it, even though I never understood the point of that. I guess they had to have something to prove I did it. I don't know. Anyways, did the inspections, logged it, and said, okay. I still did that every night, twice a night. Do you know why? Because even though that is a minor part of my job, it is still a major part of my job if it's needed. The entire point of making sure everything is working is to ensure that if something does go wrong, we're prepared for it. 
So the very idea of saying, I don't feel like doing those inspections because it's a minor purview of my job as a data center person, is stupid. Point in fact, for anybody curious, granted I did work there several, several years, but we actually did have several crises and emergencies where those, both the fire system and the backup system, were called into play multiple times. So, just saying. It's the, it's the maintenance, it's the just-in-case thing. Uh, I could call it insurance, but that word has been tainted by evil, greedy companies. <laughs> you get my point, right? So even if Riker's statement is true, which is debatable, it still doesn't get across the idea that he would complain about it. Oh, i got to do this just in case we fight some overwhelming enemy. Oh, fine. Grow up, Riker. All right, I'm done. I'm done. Let's move on. So then uh, Picard lets Riker select his crew. I'm weirded out that Kolrami opposes that because that actually makes tons of sense to me. The idea that Riker's command decisions would have to be starting tested immediately. How well does he know his crew? And, of course, Riker does know his crew pretty well and very specifically selects people, including Worf, Geordi, and Wesley, along with uh, one extra woman who I didn't catch her name because I don't think they ever said it, but she at least got some lines, so that's cool. It's always nice to see extras getting lines. There's actually a few extras in this episode that gets lines. It's strange. Uh, that brings me to another point. I know this is a weird place to bring this up, but this episode is very expensive to make. Between the ship battles, the uh, video game, the, the puzzle game that they were playing, the extras, and the extras who had lines, as well as the additional uh, set design work for the other engineering system and working on the uh, the Stargazer's Bridge set that they still had from whatever that was, season one, I want to say. This episode cost a lot to make. And I mention that because this was kind of an issue that they had to push through. And I'm glad they did, because it actually does show, in my opinion... It's something that I've said before. Flashy effects are not mandatory for science fiction because duet, DS9, right? Measure of a Man, TNG. Both of those are bottle shows. They are very relatively cheap shows to do, which had relatively few expenses, and they still managed to do a great job with them. You don't have to be super flashy or throw tons of money in an episode to make it good. However, if you have an already good episode and you put tons of money into it, then it becomes great. And I can point to several, several episodes like that, but we'll just go with Best of Both Worlds, and I think we'll go with Sacrifice of Angels for that one, just to name two right off the top of my head. So I'm glad they put the effort on this one. It shows. Moving on. Now, then we have to talk about something. And I want your guys' honest opinion. I want every one of you who is willing to comment on this video, and I know some of you don't, and that's fine. You can be a lurker. There's nothing wrong with that. But for those of you who are willing to put those comments in there and put those comments every week that I enjoy reading, do you think Kolrami is arrogant? And, and this is important, have you seen this episode recently? Here's why I ask this. When I went through my last rewatch of TNG, which was several years ago at this point, I noticed that Kolrami didn't come across as arrogant. He was a little eccentric, and he was a little full of himself here or there, but mostly about the stratagema, not about anything else. And everyone else in the crew acts as if he's some insufferable blowhard, to the point where they're just like, oh my god. There are multiple points in this episode where Pulaski, Geordi, and Picard all flat out call Rami out for being incredibly arrogant. And I just didn't see it. In fact, I'm reminded of the fact that Kolrami, uh, 
There are several scenes where Kalrami is like, oh, that's awesome, or oh, you did a good job. Like, good example, when Riker first pulls the sensor trick, which I'll talk about more in detail later, against the Enterprise, Kalrami's like, ha ha, and he, big, he figures it out immediately. He's like, oh, that's very good, that's great. <laughs> and of course, when he uh, plays against Data the first time, he actually says, thank you. That was a good game. You know, he's just, he's, he's quite magnanimous in victory. He was a little cocky to Riker, but Riker himself flat out said the entire point was the honor of playing someone like that. I mean, I could understand that if I was to go up against someone like, I don't know, I don't know names, but like if I was to play something that I am good at versus someone who is amazingly great at it, the honor would just be in the fact that I got to play a match with whoever that person is, right? That would be awesome. I'd get crushed, but it would still be an honor. So what? What do you guys think? Is Kalrami arrogant? Is Kalrami incredibly pompous? I don't know. I'm not sure what to think of this, but going back through, while there are a few moments where he comes across as a little, I think he was fine for the most part. So my next point here is that uh, we see a couple of scenes which are good. First we see the scene with him, uh, well actually first we see the scene with him insisting on getting Wesley on his crew. Now, there's something kind of funny about that. See, this is kind of a meta joke, because Wesley Saves the Ship is basically a meme, right? It was even a meme when this episode was coming out. So Riker choosing Wesley for his crew just makes sense, because you never know. And sure enough, Wesley did save the ship. His little dilithium experiment was the thing that allowed Geordi to do the wire-up in order to save the ship. However, unlike most of the Wesley Saves the Ships things, this one worked fine for me. He basically cheated in order to provide a tool that Jordy didn't have access to. And Jordy and his team, along with you know their, their, their setup and tactics, were able to come up with a solution to this problem. I like that. It's a little different than Wesley just saying, well, why don't you just fix everything perfectly this one way? There we go, done. My opinion. So then he goes to Jordy. I like how Jordy is already on board with this. Jordy had... He literally goes to Riker's like, how do you think we're going to do this? Well, get ready. And Jordy says... I've already done some work on this. As if he already either knew Riker was going to get him, or, and I like this better, wanted Riker to get him for his team. I like that, because Jordy's always struck me as someone who really does enjoy the engineering challenge. Um, it's part of what distinguishes Jordy's particular flavor of chief engineer amongst the other Star Trek uh, Illuminati, or <laughs> alumni, excuse me, wrong word, uh, the engineer alumni amongst Star Trek. He really likes the idea of, well, I've got, you know, I've, I've got to make this work, but not in the sticks and stones way of Scotty, the improvisational thing, or in the, the everything's breaking, oh God, way of O'Brien, but in the, I have a specific goal in mind and I want to design my way to that goal kind of a way. It helps distinguish him. Then he goes after Worf, and that's a great scene. First of all, credit to the fact that the lights were a little dimmer in Worf's quarters makes sense. Klingons, we've established many times they prefer things darker. Probably warmer in there too, I would imagine. Riker goes in and Worf's working on a model ship. Something about that I like. Because anybody who's actually made model ships, especially to try and make them good, knows just how much precision and care and how difficult it is to do that properly. That sounds like the kind of thing that to me Worf would be all about. Basically an exercise in discipline, if you will. Plus he probably enjoys the ships himself. I don't know, I just like that little tidbit. But then I love the wordplay between him and Riker. 
Riker's like, so what are you thinking? And Worf is like, nah. Riker manages to get Worf to argue for Riker's position because Riker attacks his own position and therefore encourages Worf to take up the opposite stance in doing so. It's pretty much straight-up reverse uh, uh, reverse psychology, but done properly. Usually fiction doesn't know how to write reverse psychology, and so I really enjoyed that little scene. And, of course, Worf was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> it'll be an honor to serve. You can tell Worf is just ready and gearing for this. And I love how most of the crew we see, including the three I just mentioned, are all like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. We get to be in a piece of crap ship and make it work somehow. And I like that. I like seeing that kind of fervor and that ambition. It helps to flavorize these characters who sometimes can come across as just a little bit too bland, you know? So, skipping forward a little bit, um, uh, then the game happens. It's a privilege just to play him. I actually decided to keep track of this. The match between Riker and Kolrami lasts 13 seconds. Yikes. (laughs) Oh my god. Um, And then, of course, Kolrami is a little bit arrogant, you know, limited dimensions, but okay. I also like how Data and Pulaski and Troy and Geordi are talking in the background about why human beings, humanoids, like to challenge each other. While they kind of dismiss this, I like Data's response. And I quote, the idea to, where is it, uh, to avoid deceiving oneself by engaging in other people's perspectives. It's something I like to do all the time, actually. In fact, as I just mentioned, it's one of the reasons I love to hear your guys' viewpoints on these episodes. Someday, God willing, I'd love to do these live so I can actually, you know, I know there's legal issues with that. And there are ways around that, I know. But I I would love to, in a more proper situation, do these live so I can hear your guys' feedback like this and be like, ah, that's a good thought. I didn't think about that, you know. Anywho. So then Pulaski insists, and Pulaski and Jordy both insist, you have to deflate Kolrami's ego. He's just too arrogant. (sighs) Anywho. So then they go to the Hathaway. I admit I smile a little bit every time he does the... I can't whistle, but you know what I'm talking about, right? The old Enterprise, the old TOS-style uh, calm whistle. It's a nice it's a nice little nostalgic thing, that's all. I just wanted to mention it. Um, so then they have their screwed-up te- ship. The episode never addresses this, but I like to think that Getting the ship into combat status is part of the test, is part of the, the the analysis. All right, here's this broken ship. We're going to have the combat section. But for right now, I want to see what you can make that ship into. Here's your deadline. Here's your crew. Excuse me. You can have basically whatever tools or resources you need to do this within reason. But let's see what you can make of this. In fact, I kind of love the idea of that being a regular thing at Starfleet Headquarters, like at Planitia, uh, Utopia Planitia, right? All right, we've brought in a piece of junk old constellation. Uh, I want to throw together a little competition. We're going to go ahead and try to get this sucker as running as we possibly can, in as good a shape as we can, in 48 hours. Who wants to sign up? And I like to think that there would be plenty of engineers who would say hell yes to that kind of a challenge. Just for the fun of it, you know? but also for the experience. It is another form of training, after all. And probably for some cred as well. Yeah, no, I I worked on the Hathaway. Really? Holy crap. Anyways. Um, So then there's a... This is where the the implication really comes in. 
They go over to the Hathaway, they look it over, and they find out just how amazingly screwed up this ship is. It is not in good shape. And they are basically bugs compared to the Enterprise-D, which, even though it will be in fake mode, is still a galaxy-class cruiser, which will crush a constellation under ideal circumstances. But that's the point. Remember what they said earlier. The Borg is what directly led to this. So I mentioned earlier the idea that there are plenty of other tactical considerations that might lead to war games like this. But a specific war game of this specific type, you're in a piece of junk, we're in a top-of-the-line cruiser, is exactly the kind of anti-Borg strategizing and training that they need. Because the Borg outlift the, the Federation. Easily. Pathetically, even. there's they, they don't even stand a chance, as we will see later. So... I do like that tiny little bit of continuity and sense-making. I also love the back-and-forth between Riker and Kolrami. I really do. And I quote, What's the Zakdornian word for mismatch? To which Kolrami says, Challenge! Yes! Oh, that's just that's a great retort to that. And I do love that. Because that is the whole point. So let's talk briefly about Worf's trick and Wesley's trick. One of the things I didn't like about this episode, going through with analysis mode, is it didn't show me as much as I would like of Riker. Most of the success, both in the fake battle and the real battle, actually sits on Geordi, Wesley, and Worf's shoulders, not Riker. Now, I know a good captain is only good as his crew, Gadur, but it would have been nice to see Riker actually showcasing some really unilateral thinking or out-of-the-box presentation or something, rather than just using the ideas of his crew, right? Anyways. So Worf's trick makes perfect sense. Worf knows the Enterprise's systems inside and out. He, in fact, we know how incredibly studious and workaholic that Worf is. He probably knows them better than most people on that ship do. So he, so he, the idea that he can mess with their security codes to such an extensive amount makes tons of sense. And I really love that idea of using that as a tactic. In fact, when he finally does it, the reaction is perfect. Everyone's like, oh my god, get the real shields back up, get the real things back up. Uh, what's going on? And then you just say, suddenly hear this <clears throat> like these fake little laser blasts in the background. And Kolrami is just laughing. And I was too, because, oh yeah, that's just great. I do wonder why they didn't directly target the nacelles or something like that. I know it's fake damage, but again, in a combat scenario, you probably want to go for the weak points first, right? Then again, I've always wondered why nobody ever targets the top of the saucer section of the galaxy. The bridge is right there. One shot, it... In fact, they kind of reference that in a few things, including Generations. Anyways. So, that's cool. Why does Worf's trick work on the Ferengi? Remember, the episode in itself establishes that Worf is intimately familiar with the Enterprise's systems, and thus knows the exact codes and the exact data to send to, to simulate, oh my gosh, how does he do anything with the, with the Ferengi? Now, I have actually heard someone, and I admit I didn't think of this, but I have heard one fan, this was years ago, who gave a possible response to this. Well, we have Starfleet Intelligence, right? Why wouldn't he have the Ferengi codes? And I do admit, Worf is the kind of guy who would probably study Starfleet Intelligence reports on potential enemies like the Ferengi, so... Okay, I'm willing to give that. 
it would have been nice if they at least tossed a line in there like, thankfully, uh, I've been studying Starfleet intelligence reports lately, I can do this, you know. That's all I'm asking. I'm curious if you guys can come up with anything else. So then we get to Wesley's trick. Now what I like most about Wesley's trick is despite basically cheating and also, you know, a lot of work in, in making this along with Jordy and Wesley and all the crew, it still is a very brief trick which only barely works. And in fact would only work for very specific circumstances. In fact, the only reason that the warp is a benefit at all is because they shouldn't have it. It is thus a surprise. And a surprise is only really an advantage when it's a surprise. It's also worth noting that, as they mentioned, they'll get like two seconds of warp, maybe. <laughs> and after that, nothing. Granted, two seconds of warp, uh, even warp one, is not exactly shabby, but you get the point. And it is funny to me, because one of Riker's first questions was, what kind of warp capability do we have? And I only point that out because, in my mind, warp should be used as a combat tactic more than it is. In fact, it almost never is used as a combat tactic in Star Trek. Like, you can go to warp, and then come out of warp, and then come back into warp, and then go out of warp. I mean, there's a lot of mobility possibility that that offers that I feel like they don't use. But then again, tactics in Star Trek is not really a big thing anyway, so whatever. Moving on. <clears throat> so it's a good trick. And again, I like how it's not Wesley saves the ship, but instead Wesley helps Geordi work towards something that together, as a com combined whole, we can use to save the ship. I like that better. So then Data has his match with Kulrami, which lasts 17 seconds, by the way. I timed it. And, of course, Kulrami is polite and enjoyed it, and Data's wigged out. Um, I want to take a quick aside here to mention that there's one scene where Kulrami says, Your crew is doing very well. A tribute to your leadership. And then he says, But Riker, nah. And then Picard pulls him aside and basically reads him the riot act. Like, you've been, you've been terrible and arrogant. Why are you so terrible and arrogant? And Kulrami says, eh, I find Riker to be lacking. I don't get why everyone says he's so arrogant. I feel like I'm missing something. Like, I really feel like maybe the director was supposed to tell the actor, or maybe the actor was just supposed to portray him as in a completely different way. Like, you could hear the same lines being said. <clears throat> it's the excuse me thing, right? If you don't understand what I'm talking about, the words excuse me actually don't really mean anything. It is the tone with which you say excuse me that matters. You can say it as a question. Excuse me. You can say it as, like, a, an invocative, excuse me. You could say it insultingly, excuse me. You could say it genuinely, oh, excuse me, right? So I feel like the same words could be used to make him far more arrogant. <laughs> oh, yes, your crew is doing wonderful. There's certainly a <laughs> tribute. I, I can't play arrogant, forgive me. There's certainly a tribute to your leadership, right? But instead he says it genuinely. I don't know. Anyways. <sighs> So then, so let's get back to Data. Data lost the match against Korami. Then Data presumes he is in error. This part of the episode actually irritates me just a little bit. I, I, it's hard to explain why, because it just kind of gets on my nerves. But the entire idea is that Data presumes that because he has made a mistake, that he is infallible, excuse me, that he is in error, and therefore everything about him must be double-checked because he believes he's in error. Now, Given the nature of Data, and what he is, the idea that he believes he is in error, and therefore that has to be corrected before he does anything else, that makes sense. You don't know what else is affected within a system if there is a known system flaw. I'm with it. The problem is the fact that he assumes a system flaw. They actually flat out call Data infallible twice in this episode. 
And the entire idea is that Data has apparently never made a mistake ever, or never lost ever. And I find that a little bit hard to swallow, because if he had, then he would have already gone through this then, rather than now. And it's a shame, too, as there's a helicopter going overhead, it's a shame because I like the resultant of this thing. See, the premise is just like, really? And then, you know, Troy comes down, and then Pulaski comes down. Good scene, like I mentioned earlier. But then Picard comes down and says, and I quote, It is possible to make no mistakes, or no, it is possible to commit no mistakes and still lose. That's just life. And goddamn, is that so true. And that is some really good life advice that would really help Data, I think, to grow and develop as his own separate entity. So, anyways. So then it gets to the scene where Data pulls the he knows, we know, we know, he knows, he knows, we know, he knows, that he knows. He's not sure if he knows, but we do know that he knows our knowing of his knowing. So his knowledge of our knowing knows, I'll stop. Point being, he pull, he starts pulling that gag, and Troy cuts him off. He's like, look, what can we do about this? And then Worf does his trick. I already mentioned it. That's great. And then Quark, <laughs> I mean, oh, God, I can't remember who he's playing. Armin Shimmerman attacks in a Ferengi Marauder. And this is where issues come in, because, as I mentioned earlier, this is why you have other ships on hand for war games, or do it in range of a starbase, or something, or on the holodeck, because the Ferengi comes in out of nowhere, talk about that in a second, and the Enterprise, under normal circumstances, would have responded correctly. Remember how they responded when the Romulan Warbirds showed up? They were like, okay, you switch to proper shield, switch to proper weapons, bam, bam, bam. They would have been prepared and just fine with dealing the Marauder if not for Worf's deception. It was the cry-wolf situation. So that is well-constructed. It makes it so that the Marauder can do critical damage to the basically defenseless Enterprise, and thus the Enterprise is damaged to a point where it can't properly retaliate. That at least makes a degree of sense to me. What's kind of irritating, then, is that they then add that the transporters are broken. No mention is made of the transporters at the cargo room, or on the shuttles, but whatever. <laughs> then Kolrami brings up the cold calculus situation. And this is probably one of the more interesting aspects of the episode that is completely undiscussed. The idea is that they have set up a dilemma. Now, it's a very flimsy dilemma, but the idea is, do you save your, you know, 960 people, or do you save 40 people, and or try to save 40 people, and everyone dies, Right? Needs of the money, etc., etc. It's a very cold calculus equation. And I find it actually very engaging, as weird as this may sound, that Kolrami instantly and without hesitation presumes that the cold calculus must be approached. I'm going to take a moment to quote something weird. Fire, wake, fire Emblem Awakening. Hear me out. There's this scene where the main character and, I forget his name, Archer Guy, are playing chess. It's part of their uh, scenes together. And the Archer Guy just keeps crushing her at chess. But the reason he's doing so is because his only objective is to win the game. If you are a leader, a tactician, if you will, whose only objective is accomplishing victory, then you are going to be more willing to accept losses because those lives mean nothing to you. They are score, or points, or currency, or resources to be distributed in order to accomplish what actually matters to you. Victory. This is the very perspective I get from Kolrami, that he thinks of all of this uh, funct- functionally as a game. 
I don't mean literally, as in he doesn't care about lives or anything like that. I mean that's his mentality. If the goal is victory, then nothing else comes into that. There's no morality. There's no ethics. There's no need for uh, personal regret. I, I doubt Kalrami would even feel bad about leaving this, the Hathaway behind. It was the correct decision, right? And I like that tiny little snippet of insight into that because it also helps to very strongly showcase why Picard is not like that. In fact, funnily enough, Riker, the one who everyone keeps saying has a good tactical stance or whatever, says the exact same thing. He flat out says, no, I agree with Kohlrabi. You should bail. You should win and get out of here. I find that very interesting. I especially find it interesting because, of course, they had to find the third option, which in this case I do think works, except for the codes thing I mentioned earlier, um, which can be explained. And I think it works this time because Star Trek likes to take the third option out of a dilemma a lot. And that does remove some of the strength of a lot of those dilemmas. But I think when a third option has been earned, it's okay. This is something I've always been in favor of. Um, Mass Effect is a good example of a situation where you have to work at it and you have to do things just right. But if you do, you earn that pro you know you earn that third option. You don't have to kill them or kill them. You can just make it work for both of them, right? And in this case, while I have many issues with the construction of this episode, I think that is one thing that was very well um, constructed. I hate to repeat myself, but you know it was very well laid out in advance. The dominoes were already there, so that they already had access to the warp drive, so that they already had access to the scanner, th the sensor thing, even though that shouldn't make sense, and they already had the functioning torpedoes which they could use which themselves would not work on the Ferengi, because shields are still up, but they themselves are damaged. So you could see how all the pieces were just in the right positions to make this third option possible. So I'm with it. So they do it. And then Data stale... Uh, he, he does beat Kalrami. I, I don't care what you say. If someone gets up from the table and leaves, they have just forfeited. So Data did actually defeat Kalrami. One thing I do like about that is that that right there is the theme of the entire episode. The entire theme of the episode is what you do when you can't win. We see that in Worf. We see that in Wesley. We see that in Riker, to a little bit. We see that with Geordi. We see that with Data. It's a recurring theme of, well, I can't win, so what do I do? In fact, I believe earlier in the episode, Picard flat out says uh, it's, it's the attempt, the endeavor that matters. We want to see what you try and how you try. I like that. It's a nice recurrent theme. This is also, in many ways, the final episode of Season 2. can't believe we're finally through all this. Next week, however, we do have to do the technical end of Season 2. And I am very curious if it will be a lamentation. I never decide that in advance. I always decide after I've watched the episode. Place your bets. I'll see you there, guys.